Plucky Ladies Podcast, exploring female curiosity, perseverance, and feats of excellence. Hosted by Jess Cat. Today on Plucky Ladies, I talk with Dr. Jamie Edgen. She is a professor in the Department of Psychology, the director of the Memory Development and Disorders Laboratory, and she's also an award-winning researcher for her work with individuals with Down syndrome and autism, which is one of the reasons I wanted to speak with her today. Welcome to Plucky Ladies, Jamie. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's such a great series. Thanks. Oh, well, I'm glad. Um, so before we get into your work, which is super fascinating and I want to talk about, I want to go back and talk a little bit about your past, where you come from, where you grew up, and sort of how you found your way to being a scientist. Great. Yeah. Um, so this is a bit of a long story. Do That's we have okay. <laughs> we have time. Okay. Uh, so uh, I am from a small town in Pennsylvania called okay. Somerset, Pennsylvania. So uh, most people identify it by it was where Flight 93 crashed. So oh, wow. uh, it's, you know, it has cornfields and be- it's a beautiful area. Um, it was from a, a little village about you know three four hundred people oh really um outside of that bigger <laughs> that wow. bigger city that where um where that happened okay. um so uh you know I'm a first generation college student oh wow uh and uh, uh I tell people that a lot more these days because I find it like uh the students really need to hear that so yeah. one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast was actually to to tell the story, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, so uh, I was, I'm a, a first generation college student. Um, my, uh, you know, my my family had a lot of strong women in, in it. Uh, yeah. So there's stories from my mom about her grandmother, um, who was a teacher, mm-hmm. um, who at one point, um, and this is pretty amazing thinking about the time that this happened. You know, she, um, when she retired, she sort of traveled across the entire United States by herself wow. and you know she was quite an adventurer yeah. and uh, interested in learning and you know all of that so there, there were lots of strong women in my family and my mother is a very a very strong woman she's a very wise wonderful woman um, but unfortunately when she was 19 uh, she actually had a swimming accident uh, and had a pretty serious brain injury oh, wow. as a result of that. So she was hit in the back of her head by somebody who do- dove off of a diving board oh, and um, had to recover from that. Uh, and it, it derailed her college years quite oh, substantially. Uh, she had to drop. She didn't finish. Uh, she had gone. She wanted to become a teacher. Oh, wow. um, and so that was, uh, you know, uh, part of the story about her. Um, but you know. It, Moving on in her life, she uh, married my father, mm-hmm. uh, who was, uh, you know, it, it, in some ways, in a very difficult man, um, and not very supportive of women, not supportive of her, and certainly not supportive of me. So, wow. growing up, I sort of hid from him, I would mm. say, uh, wow. and uh, tried to cope with uh, him and um, his his difficulty in different ways. And one of the ways I did that was actually to uh, to engage in a lot of music. Oh, wow. um, and so I became uh, pretty pretty interested and pretty active in music. I played the French horn um, and uh, spent, you know, I think back about my high school years and I spent almost all of my time with music, practicing music or uh, listening to music in my room, sort of, you know, in my way of you know expressing myself without really 
engaging with my father and yeah. trying to stay out of that situation. So, yeah. um, and my mother was supportive and she was there. Yeah. Um, but, you know, as part of that, and why I'm leading up to this, uh, telling you about this part of it is I actually went into music um, and did a music major okay. in college. Yeah. So I went to Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, which is a wonderful, wonderful school, and I majored in music uh, for two years. Yeah. Uh, but all the time that I was there and in high school, I also had this interest in science and um, some math skills, like they advanced me to a higher level of math when I was there. And mm -hmm. But that's not what helped me to sort of you know, have my time to, you know, hide from my dad and stuff. Right. So that was what, that was what I was doing and how with I was coping with yeah. that. Mm -hmm. And then I got to um, college and I realized, you know, I was good in music as a high school student and I meddled in one state orchestra and stuff like that, but sure. I was not great in music as, <laughs> as a college student. Yeah. So, and the only thing I really did well was sort of like the theory of oh, music wow. and so, like the, you know, Which the is very math mathematical, mathematical, yeah. right, right. Yeah, yeah. So, that was the kind of thing where um, I, you know, I was I was good at that piece, and I was very interested in getting into some of the science classes at Carnegie Mellon, and mm -hmm. um, so I transferred out of music at that point in time. And I remember sitting down um, and thinking, you know, there's there's only so many majors I can do in four years, right? Yeah. And somebody who came from a family without a lot of means, I had to figure out what major I could do to finish in four years. Okay. And so I, I basically looked through the course catalogs and I could do uh, economics or psychology oh, wow. um, based on having two years of music okay. uh, and being able to finish. Um, and for lots of reasons, I was very, uh, very drawn to psychology um, and I switched. Yeah. And uh, I remember that whole process of switching from music to psychology and I was so excited to do that and just I sat down with the counselor and I said I'm going to take because um, that major was psych science so it had like a lot of math and yeah. science components as well sure. as a psychology yeah. I was like I'm going to take computer science for majors I'm going to take calculus one because yeah. I had taken calculus in high school and yeah. I wanted to like you know do it again and uh, I thought I think I took like economics that semester and um and the counselor said to me, uh, you're a music major. I don't think you should be taking <gasps> computer science for majors at Carnegie Mellon. You're not going to, you're not going to pass that oh, class. Come on. And I said, no, I, yeah, I am. <laughs> I'm going to take it yes. and I will see how I do. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, so I went in and I finished one of the top students in the class. Oh and that gosh. semester for me was just like, it just, you know, I'd spent some time doing the music, which was just wasn't my my thing. Yeah. And it was just like opened up all of these possibilities. And psychology, I was just, I was at the edge of my seat the entire time. And yeah. I ended up being, um, you know, I ended up being asked to be a TA after that yeah. and transitioned yeah. into doing a research project there. And uh, working with a, a woman um, at the University uh, at Carnegie Mellon who um, and her husband, um, who were doing a joint project on autism at that time. Okay. And so I did my honors thesis on autism and managed to do really well in those last two years, enough to get into graduate school yeah. and, you know, um, do well as a student there in that program. Um, uh, so then I moved on to graduate school from that point and yeah. working on autism um, at the University of Denver with a neuropsychologist there. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Do you think that your mom's injury had anything to do with you be gravitating towards what you do? I think some of the issues with, like, my dad and yeah. her, you know, um, she as part of the injury, she had pretty severe epilepsy for a long time. Oh, wow. So I was just exposed to a lot of those things. Um, and just really, I've always been 
uh, very perceptive of people and behavior and just you know it's something that I really like to think about a lot and um, you know and I also really the science piece of it like what I do is you know neuroscience and you know so it's fair I that piece of it sort of merged those two things for me in a way that uh, I just really, um, really dug into. Were you yeah. an only child or do you have siblings? Yes, yeah. You're an only child. Only child. Me too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you said the thing about hiding, you know, it's it's easier to do if it's just you. Yeah, yeah. It's harder to do in a big family. Yeah. So I just sort of imagined maybe she was an only child and this was her way of finding something that was just hers. No, no, away. no. It was just me. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. That's That can be difficult. Yeah. Because you don't have anyone to talk to about what's going on. No, no. And I mean, I think that it took me a long time um, to really develop. You know, I really went very inward for a long time. And so to really develop a voice and being, you know, part of our job as scientists is to be great communicators, right? Right. And um, so it took me up until... Um, my postdoctoral years to really feel comfortable talking to people, doing things like this, you yeah. know, um, yeah. doing pub- public speaking. Um, yeah. So it was, I remember my mom basically, the, the, the teachers when I was in high school were encouraging her to put me into um, a public speaking group because I was so quiet. Yeah. Um, and so it took a long time. Um, to really build that up Um, and you know now I can talk for an hour straight sure not stopping sure and it was um, yeah it was something it sort of I had to took you some time yeah yeah well you say as scientists we have to be great communicators and I find that so interesting because I think the public has a view that scientists are not good communicators because they tend to think of scientists as being boring or being lost in their data and they can't really relate to people and I think it's something that is actually having a moment right now where a lot of scientists, especially the young scientists who are coming up, are starting to realize that part of their job as a scientist is not just to do the science, but to be able to relay the science to the world in a way that people can understand and appreciate. Because otherwise, how do you get funding for science? You yeah, know, people aren't going to yeah. vote on things that relate to science if they can't understand what it is that you're doing. Yeah, I think it's, you know, this is one of the things I'm passionate about. Yeah, and I feel like I really... Um, I really enjoy that piece of it. So a lot of the thing, the work I do in my lab yeah. is really directly applicable to people's day-to-day lives, their health care, mm-hmm. um, and it comes from a cognitive neuroscience, a basic science perspective, but it takes that and answers a question, um, you know, a scientific question in a way that helps people to, you know, think about their sleep or think about, you know, um, issues with their kids. Um, So that's something I really, I feel like, given the diversity of experiences I've had in my life, like, I feel like, it's funny, not having that voice early on helps me have a good voice now because I can really talk to a lot of different people about where I've been and what I've done and mm-hmm. you know think about ways that people think about science that might not necessarily um, be immediately obvious or sure. you know um, so I'm real I think I, I've developed those skills in part because of what I've been through wow so, that's yeah. a good point yeah and yeah. you're kind of seeing the silver lining to whatever those difficulties were in yeah. your life yeah. and how they were able to give you something that led to where you are today yeah which it is definitely amazing. has made me like um, um, I, you know, I really, um, I'm happy for what I've been through mm-hmm. and I, I use it a lot in my day to day life to be grateful for everything I do. I mean, I have the best job in the world. Yeah. I mean, to think about these problems and to think about them scientifically and to really you know, dig in and do something that might you know, help change how people 
um, in my my situation, how people sleep, which then can help them better have better cognition or health. I mean, those are that's to be able to do that to use science in that way is mm-hmm. just such a gift. Yeah. And you know, not having that when I was a kid makes me see what a gift I have now. Yeah. So. Um, I want to go back a minute to you talking about um, whoever that was that told you you shouldn't take computer science yep. for majors. Um, was that it? I can't remember. Did you say it was an advisor? Or yeah, a, okay. it was like a, a psychology advisor. First of all, it's like, how are you an advisor? And you're speaking to a student that way. To me, it's just, it's unbelievable. I don't know yeah. if these things still happen, but um, it's another great message to put out there, I think, for young people listening that... Um, Sometimes you just shouldn't listen, yes. right, to the people yeah, around yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. I've, I think this is one of the things also that's developed because of the way that I grew up. Mm-hmm. Like, if somebody tells me I can't do something, I will do it you the next it. minute, yeah. right? Like, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. And, I mean, not all the time is that a good strategy. But, you know, if it's something like advancing your education or something you're really passionate about, you need to follow your heart, right? Yeah. And I really, I'm so glad I took those classes when I transferred. And yeah. it really just opened something up to, for me and a whole new world, right? I, uh, as you know, I'm teaching this seminar this semester, Women in Science, which you're going to visit. I'm very grateful. Yeah. Um, and I had a student tell a story about um, – someone when she told someone she wanted to do engineering and the person saying to her well good luck with that a man you know saying that to her basically you know this is for for guys it's not for girls you're gonna have a hard time and I think to myself a lot about some of the things the women I've spoken to the things that have been said to them and I think would would they have heard that same thing if they were a guy like would someone have looked at you and said don't take computer science for majors if you were a guy um or is it just because you were a music major or was part of it because of your gender? Yeah, you know, it's hard to tell. It's yeah. probably a bit of both. Like yeah. the, the, the um, amount of men in that computer science program was pretty um, pretty high percentage of yeah. men in that class. Yeah. Um, so it could have been a bit of both. And it's still that way now. I mean, there's a lot of sciences that are still so male-dominated yeah. and we need to do better. Psychology doesn't seem to be one of those, which is kind of unique. It's mm-hmm. one of the sciences that there are a lot of women go into psychology. Yeah. It has a broader range yeah. of... Uh, you know, it's a it's one of the it's the, one of the largest majors on campus. Right, right. Um, people go into it for a broad range of sure. reasons. Um, you know, I I didn't go into it because I thought it was nurturing. I went in because I had some really um, you know really uh, strong pulls to learn a lot about the brain and okay. about you know a bit. It may be the case in the sense that it um, has a broader range of outcomes that people are attracted to. So in terms of a psychology major, you can get a rigorous uh, training in science, but then you can also get, you know, you could go into a counseling path or you can, so it's, it is, or you can use it to, a lot of people go into the psychology route to go to medical school. Um, So there is, I think there's kind of like, it's one of those majors that, lead you to many different paths that may, yes. you know, may help with that gender distribution. Sure, but sure. in terms of gender um, equality in psychology, it's interesting because we do have some, uh, you know, we have more prof- full professors, just like other fields, right, that yes. are men. Right. Um, oh, that's and right. So, 
I'm thinking um, about the student population. Yeah, it's very woman heavy. But at the higher level, administrators, full professors, you know, yeah. it tends to be the case that we have some imbalances at the higher level as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, such a, yeah. Such but a, there's, you're yeah. right in terms of student um, gender distribution. It's, yeah. there's more women yeah. that go in. Yeah. 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 So I want to talk about the work you do because I don't know much about it, Mm -hmm. but I think that, um, so all of us are interested in sleep on some level. So I know sleep is one of the things you do. You also talk about memory development, and in particular, you work with um, not all of your work, but you do work with people um, with some developmental disabilities and with autism. So I would love it if you could tell us about some of the work that you're doing. Um, You mentioned a little bit about what drew you to that. You started working with um, autism when you were doing your PhD, did you say? And so um, what is it that led you to this, to your interest in sleep? Well, that's a really interesting question. So um, when I was in graduate school, Mm -hmm. um, I actually worked on a project that was looking at Down syndrome um, and Fragile X syndrome and autism. And it was a program project which we were trying to understand links between genetic mouse models and um, what we were getting information from them in terms of their differences in genome and then their outcomes and then mapping that on to neuropsychological or cognitive outcomes in humans. Okay. Right? And at that time, so this was, oh gosh, like, I can't even remember, a long time ago, yeah. 15 years ago yeah, or yeah. so. Yeah. Um, we really didn't talk about sleep in any of these groups. Okay. I went through my entire graduate school career working on these populations with pretty severe sleep impairment, not having said the word sleep in reference to them at all. Right. They were impaired, sleep impaired. Yes, sleep And you impaired. weren't even considering that we as part of your, yeah. We weren't considering it at all. And mm-hmm. so one of the things that when I, you know, as a scientist, I get really passionate about is when there's a you know, there's a field in which people aren't looking at a particular angle, mm-hmm. and they should be, right. right? And so when I started my faculty position at the U of A, um, the U of A is really a, a wonderful center for sleep science. So we have okay. researchers across, th- 30 researchers across campus that do some aspect of sleep as part of oh. their work. Um, so we have researchers at Banner, yeah. uh, in psychology, and neuroscience, you know, across many departments on campus that are doing sleep work. And so there is just this sleep culture here where people think a lot about sleep and they think deeply about sleep and its effects. And yeah. so when I started working here as a postdoc and then as a faculty, um, a faculty member, I really wanted to incorporate that into my work um, and bring that into these disorders that people hadn't really thought about it sure. in this, in before. Yeah. Um, and so... For Down syndrome in particular, I'll talk mostly about Down syndrome because most of our um, major publications have been in that area and we've had a lot of funding in that area. Um, Those kids are sleep impaired from, um, they're from, you know, three months of age. Um, You can sleep to see sleep disturbances and up into older adulthood. And they're at risk for the development of Alzheimer's disease at a higher rate than the typical population because of some genetic um, predispositions they have for that, right? So here we have a situation where there's this developmental disorder that results in intellectual disability that we've spent years and years and years trying to understand this intellectual disability, but we haven't talked about sleep. And I didn't do it either when I was researching this for my own postdoc, my own own PhD thesis, right? Um, And so 
I really wanted to emphasize that in my work. And so we engaged in a number of different studies to look at correlations between sleep and learning in older adults with Down syndrome. To we did that in school-aged children. We did that in infants and wow. toddlers to look at correlational um, uh, relationships between sleep and um, aging or sleep and the development of milestones. And we wow. see sleep see sleep deficits across all of these different age ranges. So there and there have they have sleep deficits are those sleep deficits related to their disability they're correlated with their disability okay um and so we recently had um you know, obviously we want to move to doing more um, causal work where we can actually see if we change their sleep, um, does that impact their their outcomes, sure. you know, in terms of their learning and memory or their language development. Um, so we're working with some people at Banner to think about new clinical trials. So Dan Combs is a sleep doctor over there, a pediatric sleep doctor. And so we're collaborating on to maybe do some drug treatments to influence sleep and potentially help with their cognitive outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we recently had a, pu- a paper published in PNES where we actually um, we taught kids new words. Okay. Uh, and then we looked at how they retained those words off or after different intervals. Okay. Um, and so we manipulated whether they had sleep right after learning oh. or not sleep, right? Okay. And that's yep. another way that's it's not correlational, but it allows us to see what sleep is really doing in that interval of time after learning, okay. right? Mm-hmm. And so we saw that the kids that were typically developing that didn't have Down syndrome, they benefit from sleep. So if you teach them something like a new word and then they, they take a nap, that actually is really good for retention. Oh, wow. And it's good immediately after the nap. It's also good 24 hours later. So they're oh. holding on to it because of that nap. Yeah. These are typical kids, okay. right? Okay, yeah, yeah. So if you do that in Down syndrome, if you teach them a new word and then they sleep, they lose that word. They like they lo- they actually don't retain what? across that interval. And they're better if they actually stayed awake, no right? Way. Yeah, and so there's something about that sleep period that is not functioning in the same way that actually was relating to differences in retention. Um, the typical kids, what we saw was REM sleep, so rapid eye movement sleep, dreaming-related sleep. Seemed to The more rapid eye movement sleep they had, the better retention they had. Okay. In Down syndrome, they had less rapid eye movement sleep, um, and they weren't entering into periods of as long of rapid eye movement sleep. So there might be something about REM and not getting into REM or not getting into good enough REM yeah. that could influence that outcome. Um, yeah. yeah. And so we think about REM. I mean, I've heard that before for just all of us that, you know, that REM sleep is that deep sleep where it's like restorative and that's where you're actually getting that all those benefits of the deep sleep. Is that true that that's the time when you're getting better? Well, slow wave sleep has been emphasized a lot in the literature. So um, slow wave sleep is um, a deeper, it's like uh, has a lot of um, uh, very high amplitude, low frequency waves, a lot of synchrony in the brain. Okay. And then REM is when you come up and your EEG patterns look a lot more like wake, oh, but really? there's muscle okay. paralysis um, and you see the rapid eye movements and dream a lot. Of, the dreaming occurs in both, but dream, a lot more dreaming and REM. Okay. Okay. In terms of that. And so. do they kind of cycle? So they're kind of in between each other? Yeah. Like you cycle, so you cycle through, through those different you things? Cycle through those. Yeah. So it's actually not the REM periods that seems to be the most restorative for us, but those in-betweens where it's more low level. Well, there's been a lot of emphasis on slow wave sleep in terms of, the, you know, that's really when you have sleepiness during the day 
and you and you you know one of those days where you're so sleepy and you just sort of fall into bed well you're going to fall into a lot of slow wave deep slow wave sleep at that point um, because you're building up pressure for slow wave sleep so slow wave sleep is um, one of those stages that's related to like a lot of sleep pressure um, if you get more slow wave sleep then you feel sort of that restorative yeah. effect right yeah. um, but we also need REM and there's a lot more work coming out about you know the cycling through slow wave and REM and how that can be beneficial mm-hmm. um, different functions of REM that REM might be more beneficial when you really need to integrate a lot of information together wow. or maybe more beneficial for verbal learning so there's a lot coming up about REM and its yeah. influences as well so um, they're both necessary sure. and they yeah. they relate to um, outcomes and um, terms of learning and memory. So. It's really fascinating to me that you would see those almost complete opposites in children without yeah. Down syndrome and children with Down syndrome because we tend to, at least for me, who doesn't understand this stuff very much, would tend to think, well, sleep is beneficial no matter what. I mean, anytime yeah. you can sleep, it's going to help with if you just learned something or if you just worked out or whatever you've done. It's going to be healing. It's going to be, you know, it's going to generate new whatever, new cells. It's going to, you know, all the things that we think of happen when we sleep. Well, there may be some, we don't know about sort of the physical benefits mm-hmm. of those naps. So our periods of sleep were actually naps. Okay. And naps are a tricky business, right? Okay, tell me why. So <laughs> um, if, if you're used to having naps, they can you can benefit from them. And there are some data coming out about people who are sort of used to having naps versus not. But if you're not used to having naps, they can actually sort of interfere with your nighttime sleep. Um, you know, and so a lot of napping during the day for older adults might actually be a, a, um, not beneficial. Um, so in our particular instance, kids with Down syndrome nap much later in development than typically developing kids. Typically okay. developing kids transition out of naps from three to four years of sure. age. Mm-hmm. So they don't really need them anymore, and they consolidate most of their night in their sleep into the nighttime, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But kids with Down syndrome are sleeping a lot later um, in terms of those naps and later in development. And, um, you know, it may be interfering a bit with their nighttime sleep as well. So naps can be one of those things where, like, Sometimes they're beneficial, or perhaps in some cases they may not be as beneficial. And they might have different functions than nighttime sleep as well. So there might be something, you know, in terms of, um, in terms of how, uh, you know, getting sleep at that particular part of the day, which might be really close to a learning session, mm. for instance. Yeah. So for typical kids who are nappers and regular napping, that looks like that's great. So our kids who are taking those naps in schools, that's a great thing. But if you aren't a great learner, and then you go straight into a nap, there might be something about that interaction between just learning something and napping that could be, um, uh, you know, keeping them from retaining as well. Now, do you think um, uh, kids with Down syndrome who are napping more later in their developmental later ages, right? Mm-hmm. So they're taking naps longer. Do you think, is there a physiological reason that they're, they need to nap more during the day? Or, I mean, because you would think if, if it's happening, there's a reason, right? That yeah. Their body for, needs it for some reason. Yeah, they don't get, um, in terms of their nighttime sleep, they don't get as good as nighttime sleep because a number of them have sleep apnea. They oh. have sleep regulation issues as okay. well, but a number of them have sleep apnea. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I think they're more driven to get some daytime sleep because of that. And it's kind of almost like a vicious cycle because yeah. then if you're napping more, then you're not yeah, sleeping as yeah, deeply yeah. at night. Yeah, and so we have yeah. a study we're working on now where we're actually trying to uh, take away their naps on a couple of days and compare that their, their nighttime sleep 
um, when those naps are taken away versus when they have them mm-hmm. um, to see if there's a difference in nighttime sleep and then also to look at their learning patterns on those days that they do nap versus when they don't nap. Sure. So that's the most unpopular study in the world um, to take yeah. away kids' naps. naps. Oh, so <laughs> from the parents' point of view. Yeah. I mean, oh, I think lots boy. of parents are interested about the question, but uh, we were trying to get people to come in and let us take their kids' naps. <laughs> and they're like, no, that's the only time of day I get a break. I know, yeah. yeah but, um, I remember I think that it, feeling. In terms of the science and the uh, the question of it, it's really important to understand what's going on. So this brings up a whole interesting topic in my mind. When you work with people, as uh-huh. you do, you have to get all these special permissions to be able to work with human subjects. I yep. know because some I've done some education research where I was working with students and they had to sign forms and all of these things. And I would imagine for studies like this, it's it's not is it easy or is it not easy to find enough people to find people who want to participate in these types of studies? You know, I think it depends on what the study is. Um, mm-hmm. In terms of uh, with the sleep studies that we do, um, really to measure sleep well, um, we have to do what's called polysonography. Mm-hmm. Um, which is basically an EEG hookup, and we get sleep physiology. And, um, you know, that can be taxing for some families to participate in that kind of study or to have people um, have people uh, that want us to come into their homes and do sure. that kind of thing. Yeah. So we have more trouble with finding people for those kinds of studies. Um, I think we've motivated people enough in terms of uh, people who um, uh, have children with Down syndrome that many people are interested in just helping the science mm-hmm. now, though. Um, sure. But we, you know, for those particular studies, we always need more participants. Yeah. Um, and we do spend a lot of time going to Phoenix. Oh, um, more people yeah, to draw from. Yeah, sure. so the study I told you about um, that we just published in PNES, we, we lived in Phoenix for four, four months. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, so I didn't live. My graduate student lived. Sure. She actually lived up in Phoenix wow. to complete that study. Yeah. yeah. That's fascinating. Um, God, I have so many questions. Just thinking about sleep. I mean, I think this is something that all of us could benefit from understanding more about sleep. When you said, you know, for some people naps are great and others, you know, not so much. It makes me think about, um, like, I've known people in my life who have said, oh, I'm such a great napper. I love to nap. And I'm not that way. If I take a nap, I mean, the rest of the evening, I just don't feel right. Mm -hmm. I feel groggy. I never Mm -hmm. quite get back into my groove. And so I'm wondering, um, from your perspective, do you – have any ideas or thoughts about is there again something physiological are there some people who maybe their bodies are just built more for more sleep and other because you know like we have two kids and one of our kids sleeps easily 10 to 12 hours a night no issues and the other one who's actually more physically active he sleeps like seven hours a night eight and he's never tired yeah and it's just and I'm always well one of them needs more sleep than the other is there anything to that statement (laughs) could that be true or are we just kidding ourselves I think there's a lot of individual differences and there you know there's some great research going on on campus about individual differences in relation to different um, levels of sleep Um, so it's it's not the case that we all um, you know there is a generally recommended range and if you follow that range you're more risk to develop you know cognitive impairment or other kinds of impairments but Generally, there is, you know, there's there's um, individual variability, um, and there's variability in how well we can withstand um, sleep deprivation. So Scott Kilgore, who's over um, in psychiatry, has been looking at that question um, in some grants he has. Um, So, you know, there there are um, different mechanisms that allow us to be more or less um, resistant um, based on individual differences. So it's not, you know, but for everybody... For the most part, having a you know a sleep schedule that is regular, mm-hmm. 
is super because we have you know daily rhythms and circadian rhythms and yes. our bodies follow those and yes. we like to be in our rhythm right yes. so we all have but there's individual variability in that rhythm as well sure so you know being within our rhythm having regular sleep periods um you know and trying to maximize um the the quality of sleep that we have without disturbances those are all important things for everybody but there will be individual variation i have i had a friend who's a doctor refer to it as her sleep hygiene uh-huh. and you know i was talking about how so many people have poor sleep hygiene i was like what does that mean and she's like well you know like having the tv on while you're falling asleep yeah. and having you know all these things that you become dependent upon in order to fall asleep and then but they're still like it's still going while you're sleeping so your yeah. body is not really yeah having this opportunity to go into that deep sleep. And sometimes I think that we don't even think about it. We don't realize, you know, how important that sleep is, how sacred it should be. And we don't treat it that way. Um, I know when I was younger, you know, there was no good rhythm. Like the weekends, you're up until two in the morning. And then the weekdays, you have to get up for class. So you're going to bed earlier. And I don't think I ever found a rhythm. And now that I'm older, it's like even on the weekends, I wake up at the same time that I do during the week. Just my body is like, oh, it's time to get up. And I think sometimes when you're young, you're resistant to that. Yeah. Well, but I want to stay up late because it's the weekend and, you know, not realizing how detrimental that is to your rhythm. Yeah. 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 Well, teenagers actually have a phase delay. So they they end up going to bed later every year of their teenage years. Mm -hmm. And then they get up early for school. I'm not sure when your son's school oh, starts, gosh. but you know, 7.30 for yeah. middle school. So he oh, has wow. to be up at 6, and then he's at the bus at quarter to 7. And I this I wanted to talk to you about this, okay? Because okay. this is one of my biggest problems um, with my kids' school. And, mm-hmm. I, and I have friends as well who have these issues all across the country. That middle school, which seems to be a time when kids really have this weird rhythm where their best sleep is happening in the morning. Yeah. Um, and they have to be at school at 7.30 and be awake and doing math or science at 7.30 mm-hmm. in the morning, and they're, mm-hmm. like, right in that period when their body wants to be asleep. Yeah. Is that true? Is there, there's Yeah, it's absolutely true. Yeah. So there are a lot of data. I just gave – it's funny. I just gave a lecture last Wednesday yeah. on this topic. Yes. Um, so melatonin, which mm-hmm. is you know, sleep hormone, helps promote sleep, right. right, is produced differently in teenagers, okay. right? So it's basically it starts its production later and ends it later. So okay. their optimal period to be asleep is, you know, in that morning period where we're waking them up. Yes. And so waking up a teenager at 6 a.m. is like waking us up at 4 a.m. So basically, we're jet lagging these kids and sending them um, off to school. And sending them off to school, and you know that there are data to suggest that those kids that have earlier start times, like seven thirty, is early, pretty early. There's American Medical Association recommendation of nine a.m. Yes. Um, you know that at least eight thirty to nine a.m. Yes. That people um, will you know have start times start at that. Right. that point right. and so we're basically getting those kids out and some of them when they start to drive you can see all of these accidents related to them being out early Too in early. those scroll those school start times because they're basically you know we're waking them up in a period where their body is not ready to be awake and then we're asking them to get up and get ready and go to school and drive themselves and then all the testing they might have in the morning so that's why you see all the heads on the table um, at that particular yes. um, time because those kids are not um, – their body clocks are different when they're teenagers. Yes. Um, and they're also different sensitivities to light, which relates to melatonin. Um, and so there are, there are physiological reasons for that. Yes. Right? I mean, my son is at the bus stop in the dark. 
Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah. he's walking to the bus stop in the dark with a flashlight. How does that t- trigger his body to be awake? It's still dark out, and he's going to school. Yeah. And then his very first class of the day is advanced math, like double advanced math. Wow. You know, he's a, yeah. he's a seventh grade, and he's taking advanced eighth grade math at 730 in the morning when his body wants to be asleep. Yeah. You know, and then you base a lot of the decisions that are made about the classes they end up in and blah, 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 are based on the grades and the exam scores that they're getting in yeah. these classes yeah. that they're taking at 730 in the morning in the dark yeah. <laughs> when they're still supposed to be asleep. Yeah, I'm so glad you asked me about this because yes. I'm, I'm just beginning. You know, this is something um, that it's another one of these public policy issues yes. that, you know, I was saying with Down syndrome, people weren't thinking about it. People are thinking about this now, but it yes. takes a lot of voices raised to get policy implemented. Actually, there was an act that went through Congress in 1999 mm-hmm. that would have changed schools, it would have given incentives for schools to change their start times. Okay. It was called the Z's to AAS Act oh. and basically wasn't passed. But that was 1999, and here we are still with some schools having 7.30 start times, right, where it's really just not – not what the kids can handle and what their body clock is. Twenty years them to later, do. we haven't figured this out. Yeah, <laughs> it but, makes me crazy. So it's a it's a major it's a major public policy issue. And now you know there are studies coming out saying that this particular um, what you know happens with this situation, the jet lag, basically that these kids are under because of that misalignment with their body clock, it relates to suicidal behavior. Oh, it on. relates to poor grades. It relates to depression. It relates to substance abuse, um, sexual promiscuity at that time. I mean, all of these, there's correlations with all of these outcomes. All these things that teenagers, we do not, you know, we want to keep them. We don't want them, yes. All their correlations yes. with that and yeah. the sleep issues. Um, oh, so, my gosh. It's breaking my heart. Yeah. Right. Because as a parent. Violent behavior. Right. As a parent, you feel powerless. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, you want your kids in a good school, and then the good school tells you, well, this is when school starts. And I've inquired about it before, and what I'm told is, well, it's the, we're at the mercy of the bus schedule. You know, the bus driver comes to the same bus stop three times. They take the elementary kids, they take the middle school kids first, then the elementary kids, and then the high school kids start at 8.30. So it's 7.30, and 8.30. And the buses have to be able to do all three rounds, right? So mm-hmm. they have to – And I, so my argument is, okay, push everybody up. Start the little kids first because they're up early anyway. They're driving their parents crazy at 5 in the morning, 6 in the morning. Put them in school at 8, you know, maybe high school at 8.30, middle school at 9 or something like that. What's the difference? You're just pushing everybody up by half an hour. And they're just like, oh, you know, it doesn't work. And I think, well, it's more important to me that my kid is not feeling suicidal and not depressed and not, you know, than, oh, the buses have to run on the schedule. Sorry. That makes me nuts. And so what can – is there anything that parents can do? Well, I think, again, as I was saying to you, everybody can benefit from a regular schedule. So one of the so I talked about the physiological mm-hmm. sorts of issues that right. lead to this. There's all this other social, mm-hmm. um, you know, in terms of the video game use, mm-hmm. you know, the electronics use, limiting exposure to blue light because they're more sensitive to light mm-hmm. at that point in time. So you could, you know, potentially... Uh, make sure your kid has a really good sleep schedule by turning off the computers, getting them into a state where they can go to sleep, limiting the social interaction, taking the texting away mm-hmm. up at that point so that they have this regular sleep schedule. still going to be later because their body is telling them to do that a little bit later, right? right. But a lot of people are just letting them free run. I don't, I don't know how many people, but, you know, yeah. free oh, sure. run, and then they're not going to bed till 1 or yes. so, right? Yes. But you can get, you know, with a schedule, you can – get more sleep into them the other thing is you know I think at the end of the day it really um 
we can lobby our individual schools mm-hmm. to have later start, but it, it's a it's a it's a national public policy issue. Sure. So the more parents that know about these links, about the sleep deprivation that these kids have, and all of these issues about you know that they're not functioning as well cognitively, that's linked to suicide risk, all these things, Gosh, yeah. you know, all of that. The more people that know that. And the more people that raise their voices to say, we're not going to stand for this, then potentially what we should have done in 1999 could happen happen again. But I think it takes people really pushing this issue. And it's compounded when you think about it. Like, we know that my pediatrician and I talk about this, you know, and she's a big proponent of get them off the screens and all of that, like an hour before bed at least, and have them out of their bedrooms. They shouldn't have access to to Wi-Fi or anything at night because – there's all these links now between like social media and kids feeling suicidal and depressed and all that and she said you know the the worst time when they're doing it is at night when you're asleep so you don't know that they're on Instagram at two in the morning and they're they're taunting each other and they're saying horrible things to each other on social media and you would never know because you're asleep so you know we have a rule in our house where they can't have their electronics in their room at night and we shut the wi-fi off at a certain time we just cut it so they can't get on it um but they find way I mean you know kids are smart and they figure things out and how to do things so you compound this okay they have to be up and out the door at 6:45 with potentially they're on their devices at one in the morning or something and then they're being taunted and they're you know all these things together yeah. it wasn't like this when we were kids no. because we didn't have the screens we didn't have the video games the social media so maybe we were reading before bed or we were coloring or we were you know talking with our families there weren't all these other distractions that we wanted to stay awake and be on our phones or be on our video games absolutely so you know for me I was playing my instrument and doing music and stuff sure but you know it's a completely it's a complete culture shock for me like I never I actually don't do that much internet searching etc today Um, so just the extent of it and what's out there and how much regulation I have to put on um, my kids in terms of you know as you were saying taking it away I think that that's absolutely necessary in today's world with um, in terms of the facilitating good sleep but also um, social and mental health in kids. You need to be able to regulate that in order for them to be safe on the internet, to sleep better, mm-hmm. um, and to limit, you know, limit exposure to things. Um, yeah. So so it's just part of parenting today. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's, it's not it's, my least favorite part of parenting. No, I know, and it's terrifying, it really is, because we need to sleep too. You can't be up all night making yeah. sure your kid's not on their yeah. device. And right now, my kids, you know, they're 13 and 10, so they're young enough that I feel like well, having the device out of their bedroom, they go to sleep and it's, but you know, the time's going to come where they're just up and they go get their device and they figure out what they have to do to get, yeah. to do what they need to do. And, um, you know, what do you do? Put them in a lockbox? I mean, it's just, you know, you have to start thinking really crazy about what you're going to do yeah. to make sure that they're healthy. Yeah. Well, we have a, we have a device that me- measures everything that comes in and shuts off the internet a certain yeah. part of the night. Yeah. Yeah. We yeah. do that too. Yeah, yeah. But you know, if they have a phone, they have data. Yeah. So it's one of those things. They're like, okay, but don't bring your phone in your room because they know how to go in their phone and turn the data on. Yeah. So if they really want to get online at two in the morning, there's no Wi-Fi, but they can go turn their data on and figure yeah. out how to do it. We'll see it. I mean, we monitor that. Yeah. But, um, you know, sometimes the damage is done. Yeah. yeah. It's really scary. It's one of the biggest challenges of being a parent in today's world. It really yes. Is. It really is. Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that. Um. I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, your autism work, Uh because I think this is a topic that 
um, again, is very timely. There's more and more kids that are being diagnosed on the mm-hmm. spectrum. We know a lot more about what it is and mm-hmm. how it's how variable it is. So can you talk a little bit about that? And- um, so to date, we haven't, you know, it's something we want to explore doing more of um, in Arizona, right? So in the past, I've worked on autism, and we've looked at certain aspects of their cognitive profiles. Um, I'm interested in doing some of what we've been doing with Down syndrome and their sleep as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are looking at Fragile X syndrome, which is an intellectual disability that has um, some increased risk for features of autism. Okay. So our NIH project is looking at um, sleep and memory outcomes and Down syndrome and uh, Fragile X syndrome. Okay. Um, and so basically in that work, um, we're funded by the National Institutes of Health to develop memory measures um, and measures of um, memory and sleep that will track uh, outcomes in those groups across long-term intervals. Mm. So a lot of the work that's been done in autism and Down syndrome and also in Fragile X syndrome, looking at their learning has actually been done on very, very short-term mm-hmm. intervals. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you bring a kid in and you give them a set of words and then you're done, right? Yeah. Um, but what we know from sleep is that there's actually a lot of change in those memories, you know, in terms of consolidation processes, um, how you teach somebody something at five, at that first interval, um, and look at that after five minutes might not necessarily be the same, you know, have the same effect a week later. Sure. And so we've been looking at um, in, a, in a number of different groups, and, and I'm interested to start looking at autism a little bit more with this as well, is how you teach kids words or other materials in different ways and how they retain them across different intervals. Mm. So uh, a couple ways to do that are to help them to integrate it with their self-knowledge, to engage in testing. You may have heard of the testing effect. So we've been looking at a lot of these different ways. The testing effect is basically like if you restudy something, you just have like, um, you look at your notes and you just look over and you read it. Yeah, yeah. You're not as good at retaining as if you actually have to generate the answer to something. Yes. Okay. Like, you know, mm-hmm. so so we've been looking at those kinds of methods of teaching and um, to see how they relate to memory retention at very short intervals versus weeks later, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And it's surprising because if you look at that sort of five-minute retention, it's not the same thing and the same sort of technique that facilitates five-minute retention that does looking a month later. Sure, of um, course. So that's some of the work we've been doing, and I hope to do a little bit more with autism in the future in mm. terms of looking at retention intervals and how sleep interacts with that. Because they yeah. also have sleep difficulties. They're very different than Down syndrome um, because they have a lot more sort of night wakings. Um, where in Down syndrome, their sleep because they have apnea, there's a lot of arousals all of, you know, sort of all through the night. Mm-hmm. But for individuals that have autism, they have more difficulty falling asleep and then they have periods in which they wake up, but then mm-hmm. they might, you know, go back to sleep for a longer period of time. Mm-hmm. They might, you know, not be as completely disturbed as in Down sure. syndrome. Yeah. Sure. So a very interesting profile of their sleep as well. And yeah. um, we're hoping to expand on that work a bit more. Yeah. Um, as we get more students in and more funding in. To yeah, 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 yeah. You have graduate students that are working on both projects. Um, we have. We always have graduate students interested in working in autism, and um, you know, and so we'll be we'll be expanding on that. So let me ask you: Do you um, do you ever have undergraduates who work in your lab? 
Oh, yes. And do research. Oh, yes. You do. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. At any point in time, we can have, I think we have 15 right now. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's fantastic. So one of the things I really love, I love a lot of things about being at the U of A, but one of the things I love about the U of A is the extent of um, undergraduate um, involvement we can have at this university, yeah. right? So we have students who come in and, you know, they depending on their interests, they range from, you know, just sort of working with, um, you know, video coding or something like that. But if they're really interested that we've had students come in who are now testing people with Down syndrome, um, really getting a lot of experience, working on papers, um, working, helping with, with our sleep studies, learning EEG. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, and a lot of those students have gone on to medical school or into graduate school. Yeah. And it's been fantastic working with the, the undergraduates in this, at this university. So, yeah. and we've had some really engaged people. And I think the lab has been great because it, we have a range of things going on. We have different populations coming in, you know, depending on what they feel comfortable with, they can do certain things or they can, you know, really dig in and they can get experience testing kids yeah. and experiences that can be good for a medical school or sure. in a research career sure. or, you know, what we've had students go into social work. Yeah. We've had students go into teaching, special education. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's really fun to see what they what they get out of it when they're there and then what they take with them and do later. It's been, sure. it's been great to see that. And they can, if there are students who are listening and they're interested in getting uh-huh. involved, you have a, a website for the um, – the Memory Development and Disorders Laboratory, which you are the director of. So can they just find information there if they're interested? Yeah, and then just email me about yeah. um, what we have available. Yeah. Yeah. And are you guys a part of the um, like the undergraduate research umbrella? Like the, I know the College of Science has an undergraduate research opportunities page as well. Do you know if your lab shows up there? I think it does. I think it I think does. Too. Yeah, I think it does. Yeah. Because um, it's just a great message for students. You know that there's there are so many opportunities here at U of A to get involved in in yeah. research. Yeah. And I know as an undergraduate. I didn't realize it until I was, I didn't declare my major either till like, so I switched my sophomore year into geology. And it wasn't until like the end of my junior year that I was realizing how important it was to get involved in research yeah. and how fun it could be. And so I, yeah. I encourage, you know, every student I meet, I'm like, do you do research here at the U? Because there's just so many opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. And it's great when we see freshmen come in that are already, I mean, we have students that email us their first semester here and like, yeah. I want to get into a lab right now. Yeah. So great. It's yeah. So, so if they a lot have of, that that desire yeah you got to fan that flame yep yep <laughs> yep absolutely yeah. Yeah, yeah oh gosh well Jamie I want to thank you for coming and talking to me I think we had a great chat yeah it was fun it was really fun thank I you. learned so much <laughs> and I'm looking forward to having you come visit my class and yeah, talk to my students about being a woman in science great thank you so much I really appreciate being Thanks here today again. and I'll see you when I'm at the class thank you okay bye, bye. Plucky Ladies Podcast is recorded in the studios of the Office of Digital Learning at the University of Arizona. Special thanks to the team for recording, sound editing, and photography. You can catch all episodes of Plucky Ladies on SoundCloud, iTunes, and on my website, jesscap.com. That's J-E-S-S-K-A-P-P.com, and click the tab labeled The Podcast. Send me a message with your Plucky story, and it might be featured on a future episode. Subscribe to Plucky Ladies Podcast and come along on all of my journeys into female curiosity, perseverance, and feats of excellence.